I'm sorry I'm being kind of a jerk about my fellow capitalist-minded entrepreneurs. No, um, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would actually like to probe into that a little bit more. You, you clearly have very strong <laughs> feelings about capitalists and <laughs> Silicon Valley, um, both of which are places that I've occupied. <laughs> yeah, as some have pointed out, Lee's job title includes the word capitalist. <laughs> Lee is the nicest capitalist I've ever met. <laughs> Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I, I think that needs to be in the description of... That's your new bio. That's going to supplant it, girl, of venture capital. Exactly. The nicest capitalist of ever. Hey, everyone. I'm Lee Jin here, along with Nathan Bachez, and this is Means of Creation, a show where we deep dive into the passion economy and the future of work. This show is made by Every, a writer's collective focused on business. If you've been a regular listener of this podcast recently, you've probably noticed our recent theme around labor on the internet and specifically how to counteract the precarious realities of today's platform economy. But what would a modern day labor movement in practice actually look like? What does it look like when internet workers actually own the means of production? Our guest today is uniquely positioned to explore these questions. He not only understands labor theory, but also has experience organizing labor movements on the ground as a union organizer and is now a teacher and an entrepreneur. We're so excited to have Eric Foreman with us today. He bridges the gap between theory and practice as the co-founder of the Drivers Cooperative, which we recently spotlighted on the podcast in our conversation with Jason Prado. It's a worker-owned ride-sharing app akin to Uber or Lyft, but entirely owned by its drivers. He is also pursuing his PhD in cultural anthropology at the City University of New York, and is also teaching labor studies at SUNY Empire's Harry Van Arsdale Jr. School of Labor Studies. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Lee, and great to meet you, Nathan. I would love to kick off this conversation by just delving into your history and how it brought you to where it is today. Um, you have a pretty fascinating background involving actually organizing workers on the ground. Can you just flesh that out and describe that experience a bit more and connect it to how it brought you to where you are today running the Drivers Cooperative? Yeah, I, I think of where it makes sense to start. Um, well, yeah, maybe I'll start with where, where I began, uh, my involvement in the, in the labor movement and why. Um, I think one of the funny things about how history is, is written is that um, the mistakes of the rich and powerful are easily forgotten, while the mistakes of the poor and powerless are often what is remembered. Um, the, this is relevant because the, the reason I got involved in the labor movement is because something happened in 2003. That was the year that the United States started the Iraq War. Um, in retrospect, I don't think anybody would claim that the U.S. illegally invading Iraq was a good idea. But at the time, a lot of our government leaders, in fact, most of our government leaders voted for it. And some of them even lied uh, in order to rally support behind this idea. Um, I was a high school student at that time. So now you know a little bit about how ancient I am. Um, and I remember I, I had lived overseas a little bit. I was, a, I was an exchange student in Germany. I saw some of this sort of unfolding from um, a perspective outside the United States, came back to a country which seemed to have gone completely insane um, and which was trying to start a war based on what were obviously false pretenses. 
Um, and, you know, I remember fe- February 15th, 2003, we had the large, uh, and a lot of people shared this perspective that this was a really bad idea. In fact, we had the largest protests in human history on February 15th, 2003. In fact, maybe some people listening to this, this podcast or watching were, were part of those. Um, it wasn't enough. The war started anyway. And so for me, as a, as a high schooler watching this horrible atrocity happen uh, against the will of what seemed to be the majority of the world's people, it got me thinking and wondering, okay, well, if, first of all, why do wars happen? And second of all, what can we do to stop terrible things like this from happening? So I started reading books. I checked out a book from the library in my high school called The Communist Manifesto. This was before the right wing had canceled all Marxists and, for, and burned all the, all the Marxist books that um, are found in public libraries, which is something I'm sure they would do if they could try. Um, it was actually just after they had the Republican majority and our government had passed laws that would allow the Department of Homeland Security to monitor which books people were checking out from the library. Um, <laughs> Man, we thought that was invasive. That was before like Amazon.com had taken off. And now, you know, everybody knows everything about what books you read and what books you're going to read. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole. In any case, uh, I started reading books and a lot of people like Karl Marx and like Noam Chomsky said, well, wars happen, imperial- imperialism happens because states are essentially captured by corporate interests, which are out to profit and which need inputs for, they need raw materials for production and they need markets to sell their products. And there are these inter-imperialist conflicts between different states over who's going to be able to get the raw materials and sell their products in different parts of the world. You can even say maybe this is playing out today in the U.S. conflict with China over, you know, who's going to capture the different parts of the value chain of producing a cell phone or who's going to own the IP or be able to enforce their intellectual property rights. Anyway, um, so reading, reading up on these, reading about political theory and political economy, um, a lot of people were saying, well, the problem is capitalism. The problem is that we have private ownership of the means of production. There's a small group of people who own everything, um, who own the companies we work for, the intellectual property they use to, to produce. Um, they own the machinery, they own the buildings. And the rest of us own nothing but our labor. So we have to sell our labor power to these people to survive, which means that you really have virtually no control over what you're doing with most of your waking hours. And so what people do is the things they're passionate about, they push off into the off hours. Um, They do them late at night, do them on the weekends. That's how you while away your life until you eventually die. Um, And what you've succeeded in doing in your lifetime is producing a huge amount of profit for people who are usually already wealthy because they own everything. And you've had to do the things that you love, um, see the people you care about in your spare time. Um, so it's a very undemocratic system at its core. Uh, so reading up on this problem, um, it, a lot of people said that, well, the solution here, the, the way that people can have more power over the world around us, uh, that working people can have more power around, uh, over the world around us and over these sort of world events that are happening is by organizing at what people call the point of production. Uh, organizing the workplace. Because, you know, George W. Bush didn't care that millions of people marched in the street one day on February 15th, 2003. But he probably would have had to care if millions of people had stopped showing up at work. Um, and so that's what got me interested in union organizing. Um, it seemed that it was both a strategy immediately for pa- more power over to stop the misrulers of our world from doing their misdeeds. And also, conceivably, a pathway to a different kind of society where we can make decisions of what we produce, how we produce it, and how it's distributed in ways that are more equitable um, to make sure that 
you know, what I want is a world where everyone has enough. Um, and where we, you know, yeah, and I can say more about that. Um, when I was very little, I sort of started thinking about this, like, okay, there's obviously, there's a lot of people in the world who don't have the things they need. And there's a lot of people in the world and, but everybody in the world, what we do is we go to work and we produce all the things that people need. Then you get paid like a wage for your contribution to production. And then you have to use that wage to buy back the sort of fractional part of what you produced. Why don't we just like figure out what everybody needs, then figure out how to make all of it and kind of plan that out and then give people what they need. That to me is But like, how do you solve for the fact that humans have insatiable needs and there's never a point at which it's enough? I think we'd have to have some sort of like uh, democratic system of determining what's the basic needs that uh, we all that should be met for all. And then, you know, what's the basic amount of labor that has to be contributed to, to meet those needs? I don't know. Admittedly, I haven't completely thought this through. Yeah, this, this is super fascinating. So um, getting back to uh, where this sort of puts you today. So how did you go from um, organizing workers? And by the way, I, I think there's a, a lot of stuff that... Um, I would love to hear you say more about with re regards to actually how you implemented this in the real world with, with organizing workers to then bridging that to being a co-founder of a business that people are working for. It was a long and winding road, but I'll, I'll try to make it brief and to the point. Um, so after having this revelation that the problem was that we needed to organize at the point of production, um, I started doing that with the place I was working at in college, which was a, a coffee company uh, called Starbucks, which maybe people have heard of. Um, mm -hmm. So I got a job at Starbucks in the Mall of America, um, sort of the most capitalist place, arguably on earth, and um, immediately found that it was a pretty rough place to work. There was a line out the door for like eight or 12 hours every day, all these tourists who wanted frappuccinos. The pay was, you know, was barely above the federal minimum wage. I was making like seven thirty-five an hour. They said there were benefits, but you know, I tried to use the benefits and got charged like four hundred dollars for an X-ray. Um, and I started looking at the economics of this. You know, I made one day eight hundred lattes. Those cost four dollars each. That's three thousand two hundred dollars. I mean, of course, some of that has to go to pay for the cups and the milk and the coffee and like the phone and the syrup and stuff like that. But you know, for eight hours of labor. I mean, you didn't do the math. What's eight times seven thirty-five? That's like fifty bucks. So uh, there's clearly a lot of value that's being produced here, and it was being extracted and um, returned to shareholders as dividends. Uh, in the case of Starbucks, in that year. So I started talking to people around me, and with labor organizing, the thing is, employers don't want their employees to form unions because if workers form unions, then they can have more power. Um, they can fire one worker who asked them to change something, but they can't fire everybody. Or they can fire everybody, but then people in a group can cause a lot of problems for them. So I joined with this campaign that was already underway at the time um, with a union called the Industrial Workers of the World uh, to form a union at Starbucks nationwide. Um, we ended up organizing a small committee in our, in our shop, and we presented demands collectively to our manager about things like scheduling and respect and getting breaks on time. What year was this? This was back in like 2006 to 2008. Fascinating. So this is this is far pre the kind of like Bernie Sanders DSA resurgence that's happened in more recent years. So I'm guessing when you brought it up with a lot of your coworkers, some of them may have felt kind of 
confused perhaps or did ever was everybody like knowledgeable about it already and kind of bought in no i mean people people were i mean the first thing about like talking to your coworkers about forming a union first of all i wouldn't encourage people to do this until you've like made contact with an organization that helps workers organize unions like there's one called uh-huh. the, the dsa has something called the emergency workplace organizing committee they'll help you out uh, or the iww they're also around and they'll help they'll help you out so reach out and do that before you start Call it dry, before you drop the U-bomb in the workplace, get support from an organization. Um, because when you say the word union, what workers hear is fired. Because everybody knows your boss doesn't want you to form a union. And it's true. In many cases, employers retaliate. I got fired for trying to organize this union. I got my job back, which was crazy, and worked there for another four years, um, which the company, I'm sure, wasn't very happy about. Although I did make a lot of... I did. I was pretty good at making frappuccinos and lattes. So I think that they, they probably came out ahead on the profit, um, certainly. But the um, maybe skipping ahead a little bit, you know, after six years of this, they also worked at another fast food chain called Jimmy John's, also got fired there for organizing a campaign for paid sick days. Um, this company would literally force workers who had like pink eye to come in and work. They would say, if you're sick, you have to find your own replacement. But it wasn't like there's like sort of a reserve team of like Jimmy John sandwich makers. You could just call them up and be like, it's your turn. Come up to the big leagues. Um, You know, there's nobody. There's minimal, minimal staffing. Um, So people would be forced to either, either find a replacement, which didn't exist, or you're disciplined for staying home. You'd be fired for staying home sick. So people come to work sick when manager, of course, knows that's what's going to happen. It's insanity. Uh, we had a campaign for paid sick days. The company retaliated, fired the core of the organizing committee. We fought them in court for about five years and won at every successive stage until we got to a court, which was dominated by sort of Reagan and Bush appointees. Anyway. Do they officially say, like, you're fired? Because, like, I guess it's against the law to fire someone for trying to organize a union, right? But, like, they'll find another excuse or whatever? It is. What they accuse us of, it was very brazen on their part. They accuse us of uh, dis- being disloyal. Um, okay. You may have not have known that in the United States, you are expected to be loyal to your employer. It's not just not just uh, the, the seven twenty five an hour. It was literally a minimum wage job. Um, the seven twenty five uh-huh. or so an hour they were paying bought our undying loyalty. Um, even when it came to reporting like very clear health and safety issues to the public, um, one of my coworkers uh, on the organizing committee, who's a genius. Um, created this great poster, which had a, we basically came to management, tried to negotiate in good faith. They refused. They didn't refuse to talk to us for months and months. We kept coming to them. We looked at the records from the health department. There had been a bunch of outbreaks of foodborne illness because of this company. Um, and we said, look, guys, you got to at least, at least if you're not going to pay people to take time off, at least allow workers to take time off unpaid if they're sick. Like that's the, really the minimum here. They refused. Yeah. And so we told them, look, if you don't meet us somewhere in the middle here, we're going to inform the public that your sandwich may, might be made by a sick worker. So you can Google this, Jimmy John's sick day poster. Um, this is taught in law schools now across the country when they're teaching about labor law and its limits and holes in the United States. It was a picture of a sandwich that said, this is your sandwich made by a healthy Jimmy John's worker. Next to another picture, which said, this is your sandwich made by a sick Jimmy John's worker. Can't tell the difference. It was the same photo. Can't tell the difference. Right. So that's too bad. Your stomach's about to take the sandwich test. Jimmy John's doesn't allow workers to take time off when they're sick without penalty. Something along those lines. Google it. It's floating around out there. So they told us this was disloyal and fired us all. I, I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley slash maybe the world 
would hear this story and their response might be something along the lines of, well, what is the point of all of this? Like if workers aren't satisfied with their working conditions at Jimmy John's or Starbucks, then they can go find a different job. They can get skills and, you know, not work for minimum wage and get benefits at a different employer. What is your response to that? That might work for individual workers, but someone's always going to have this terrible job. So I think I would ask, well, how would you feel if it was your sister who had that job or your brother or your dad or your kids? It's going to, you know, these jobs instead of... Well, that's not necessarily true, right? We've eradicated a lot of the terrible jobs that used to exist in human history. We no longer have... Because they're not um, competitive in the labor market anymore. Yeah, yeah we no uh, longer have chimney sweeps like they did in Victorian England. Arguably, we've replaced them with other terrible jobs um, and moved them to other places in the world that people don't see. I think if people looked at the places that their computers are made, for example, or looked at the places where their computers are disassembled, you know, you'd see something that looks a lot like the horror stories that you people think of when they think of Victorian England, right? And in all those cases, I mean, the, the motive force of improving working conditions has always been workers coming together and demanding change. Um, sure, individual people should pursue their dreams, but just because you can get a better job doesn't mean you shouldn't also try to make your job better. Um, and mm-hmm. I, think, I think we all benefit in this case. Like, do you want to be the person who's eating the sandwich made by the sick worker? Of course not which means that you need to make sure that workers have the ability to speak out when they're working in conditions or producing products which are harmful to the public. Um, Yeah. I'm curious, given all of those years of experience organizing workers um, and seeing, you know, the outcome of that, I'm curious if you have any takeaways on the efficacy of, um, of worker unionization as a mechanism to affect change. Definitely. I mean, I spent six years, you know, of my life, like trying to unionize the U.S. fast food industry by working in it, uh, working in that industry. Um, I think after six years, I don't regret that at all. And, you know, happily, organizations that had a lot more resources like SEIU uh, came in later and led campaigns that led to raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We couldn't even dreamed of that as a group of little scrappy Starbucks baristas or Jimmy John sandwich makers. I'd like to think that maybe some of that work that we did in the early 2000s um, helped, you know, open up the political imagination to, to something like that. But those, those campaigns were bold and imaginative and changed the world. Um, in terms of those six years, though, at the end of the, that time period, I did have to reflect a little bit. I mean, I'd been fired. All my friends had been fired. We had won some things. We won. We ultimately got people the right to call in sick. Ultimately, the city of Minneapolis passed a law saying everyone had the right to paid sick days. Uh, we got better scheduling. We got rid of um, bosses who did horrible things like sexually harassing their employees. We got some of them fired. Um, and we empowered people, which had, we empowered our coworkers, which, you know, actually, ironically, one of the outcomes of all this is a lot of the people I was doing this with got the confidence or the skills to go get better jobs, even if we struggled mm. to make our job much better. Um, but at the end, I had to kind of think, like, for all the blood, sweat, and tears that had gone into this, you know, we weren't really close to the world-changing power that I had, that had brought me to the labor movement in the first place. So that was kind of one insight. And then I had, I had two other insights. One was that as I learned more about the actual economics of this industry, I realized that you know, everybody thinks it's only rich kids who start businesses. And that is basically true. However... There is all, it's also possible to capitalize to some to get the, um, the amount of capital required to start something like a restaurant. That's not that far out of reach 
for people of many different of working class backgrounds and middle class backgrounds. I started thinking maybe we could actually just start our own cafe if we don't like the way this one is run. And I was pretty mm. sure if we ran this thing without the goal of making a huge profit for outside shareholders, it could be a lot better for everybody, for the people who work there, for the customers, for the whole community. And then I had a third insight, which is that something I'd actually heard in union organizing, most of what you do, people think it's all about marching around and shouting. It's not. It's mostly about listening. Um, in most of the conversations I had with my coworkers, people had a lot of, really had kind of like a lot of defenses up against the idea of forming a union. They were suspicious. They didn't trust their coworkers. They're afraid of retaliation. They didn't think this thing might really be feasible. But one idea that was never far from the top of most of my coworkers' minds was starting their own restaurant or starting their own business. Hmm. And so I started thinking about maybe there's a pathway here to some of the same things that we were going for with a union. People start unions so they want more control over their own lives. People start businesses for very much the same reason. People want to feel at home in the world. They want to own the environment that they're in for most of their waking hours. That makes sense. And frankly, I think we'd all be a lot better off if I think companies where people, where incentives are aligned, where all stakeholders are bought in and have a voice tend to perform better too rather than companies where the struggle is how do you carrot and stick people into sort of compliance with the management directive. I believe in drawing people's intrinsic motivations. I became a teacher later and sort of thought a lot more about this instead of trying to prod or exploit people into producing value. Instead, you tap into what people's passions are, which I know Lee is uh, uh, trying, to, trying to connect to the passion economy thing, which I don't really understand. Um, but, uh, so all of this, I started, I started realizing, wait a minute, like maybe it wouldn't be so crazy to start work around businesses. Then another crazy thing happened is that I found out that I'm actually a victim of communism, which I feel like makes me a credible messenger for some truths about socialism. In fact, same way, Eric, How, what do you mean you're a victim? I found out that this is, I mean, I, it's going to sound really sketchy when I do start calling myself a victim. I, obviously, this is tongue in cheek. So I found in, in 2018, my family got a call from a museum curator uh, in the middle of the Czech Republic who said that they had turned my great-great-grandfather's villa into a museum of the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I kid you not which as a Marxist labor organizer, I was of course completely mortified. Um, but it also got me thinking. So we went there to the museum opening and it was true. Uh, Moritz Fuhrmann had gone from being a penniless Jew living in a little town. Um, the laws changed. Jews in the Austro-Hungarian empire got something that looked like equal rights. He like learned how to operate factories I still don't know how. He somehow got the capital together to open his own textile factory and died as one of the richest men in town and built this villa, which was later expropriated by the Nazis and later expropriated by the communists. Uh, There's a lot of expropriation that was happening around here. Um, But interestingly, this got me thinking, wait a minute, like people who have nothing in our society somehow gather the resources to create something all the time. What if you kind of melded that with the objectives of the labor movement, which is to improve the lives of workers and to ultimately ensure that our society is is caring for the people who produce the wealth and producing wealth for the people? Um, 
so those, those things were bouncing around in my mind, you know, much later after I'd done a bunch of other things. When I, when I ended up becoming a labor educator and working with Uber and Lyft drivers uh, in New York City, where I found again that you know a lot of drivers were supportive of the idea of having a union or organizing a union, but the thing that really like lit a twinkle in people's eyes was this idea of owning the platform. Mm. And so after kind of being embedded in this industry for a few years and learning about the incredible exploitation that for hire vehicle drivers for Uber and Lyft that they go through in New York City, the people who are working 60 hours a week and coming home with incomes after expenses of twenty to $30,000 a year, um, drivers would tell me that you know, a lot of these, a lot of workers in this industry are parents. It's mostly men. They would tell me that they had seen their kids grow up by watching them get longer because they would st- leave for, have to leave for work so early in the morning uh, while it was still dark before their kids were up and they'd have to come back so late at night that they literally never saw their children for like 15 or 20 years awake. That's not right. Meanwhile, this is an industry that's generating tons of profits um, or tons of value, I guess you could say. Uber's profitability is a whole other question. Um, right. So I think fundamentally it's like, Things don't need to be this way. If you look into the economics of companies, you know, people are producing value, producing profit. It's being appropriated by people who are not the ones doing the work. Um, we could rebalance things. Now, the story of how we MacGyvered together the driver's cooperative, that's its own, that's its own story of how do you get the capital? How do people who are workers, which by definition means you don't have capital, get capital? Um, that's a challenge. Maybe it's one that you guys can help solve. Yeah, I would love to hear your sort of honest assessment of cooperatives, platform cooperatives, and the challenges that they face, um, especially how they compete against their venture-backed counterparts who seemingly have infinite capital and have really weaponized their infinite capital. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the we're still running the experiment, so the results are not in yet. So I think it's too early for me to make a, a full assessment of whether the dri- driver's cooperative is uh, can can slay the slay the dragons that are the rideshare, uh, the predatory rideshare platforms. Um, but I think a few things are very clear. One is that um, if what a platform does is connect to people who have complementary needs, you have riders who need trips and you have drivers who would like to make a living by providing trips for people. We have found that you can find those two groups of people and connect them without the enormous piles of capital that have powered Uber and Lyft. In New York City, we launched with 2,500 drivers and soon you know, grew to over 4,000. And within a month, a couple months, 40,000 people downloaded the app. That's without us spending anything on marketing. So what we had was we didn't have capital. What we did have was relationships. Ultimately, that's what a lot of these predatory platforms are using their capital for, is to buy things that we already have. Because yeah. we're connected with each other. Can I run? I have like a theory, which is maybe one that I don't know if you'll like it or not, but I'm just really curious your take on it, which you could say it's like the ultimate expression of capitalism where you're coming to the labor market with a superior value proposition, right? Yeah. Like the, the constraint for Uber and Lyft is supply. They're always working really, really hard to attract drivers. Yeah. And so it's very logical that someone may want to come in with just simply offering a better deal to drivers and saying, we'll take less of the profits for ourselves and our shareholders. And I mean, again, profits, tricky question with Uber and Lyft, but we'll 
we'll, we'll take less of the economics. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Maybe that has to do with being a shareholder control, whatever, uh, for ourselves. And we'll instead have, have the drivers have a greater share of it. Also, it's, it, it kind of mirrors sort of like in Silicon Valley, a huge part of where someone wants to go work is based on your equity ownership, not just yeah. your salary. Um, and so there's a very, it's, it's a very, and, and also the stuff you were saying earlier about promoting uh, people being able to control their own spaces and create better environments that is less exploitative. I mean, that's kind of like, there's a lot of right-wing like, you know, think tanks or whatever that are all about entrepreneurship for those reasons. I'm curious how you kind of reconcile this alternate history of the, a lot of the stuff that you've worked on as like, maybe actually kind of capitalist and whether you've ever caught flack from kind of like, you know, fellow kind of like DSA uh, uh, members. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I'm sorry. I was assuming you're a DSA member, but I'm not I positive. Am, I am a DSA member. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm assuming if you catch flax, like at the meetups, you know, like if, uh, do people say like, Hey, do you realize what you're doing is you're feeding the capitalist beast here? Like we got to choke it. Uh, I'm just curious, like if that has occurred, I'm sure it's occurred to you. But I'm curious what you think of it. To be honest, I, I don't go to the meetups because I work all the time. But um, right. it hasn't. To be honest, it hasn't really come up. I think people are ready for innovative strategies for challenging capitalism or transforming it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think you're right. There's a lot of marks in this project, but there's also a lot of Adam Smith, frankly. Yeah. Um, from how we've been able to engage in the capitalist workplace in a Western liberal society and put an offering in front of people, which is a bit different. Um, and I think. I think, frankly, superior. The value proposition is superior. For We charge riders generally a little bit less while drivers make more. And this is because we're not trying to extract this enormous profit. Um, so, you know, I think that the driver's cooperative, there's, it's interesting to tech people for, you could look at it from, there's a lot of different angles uh, on, on what we're doing. The one, one that I'm maybe, one that I'm very excited about is what, how is this a can platform cooperatives be a vehicle for transforming industries? Um, Labor unions at their best um, have raised the floor across entire industries. So if you, you can't only organize one sweatshop, right? Because the reason these are all sweatshops is because there's cutthroat competition in order to have the cheapest possible product. Of course, you also are trying to compete for capital. So you have to have a profit. Um, I think that what we can do as the cooperative is that we can, I like to think that cooperatives can raise the ceiling. We can be the best company that can exist within a given industrial context, but you do need regulation. And this is where we lose some of the um, people who are very anti-state and you need labor unions to raise the floor um, to make sure that, for example, Uber doesn't pay into state unemployment benefit funds, right? That's like 3.2% of wages, uh, they're not paying in. So if we do pay into that, which we want to, um, we would be disadvantaging ourselves uh, because you got to pass the cost into the consumer somehow, so then maybe you're a little more expensive. We're constantly trying to thread the needle and negotiate our way into being the best company that can exist within this sector. And as we grow, I think the hope is that you know we're not just a company that's providing trips. We're also a platform where drivers can find their voice. Most employers, just going back to when I was trying to unionize the fast food industry, employers, one th- exercise we would do with workers is to map out your workplace and see if there was any place where you were not on camera or not within the immediate like um, site of a supervisor. And I guess it's probably not surprising. In, in most cases, in most workplaces, that place does not exist. There's this whole Foucault idea of like the panopticon of like the... Um, 
you know, the all seeing eye where the, the, whoever has power can see everybody, but they can't see each other. Um, this is true of how workplaces are usually structured. Um, it's true. Uber does nothing to bring drivers together. I think frankly, they're kind of terrified of drivers grouping together. Um, we connect our members all the time through a WhatsApp group, through face-to-face meetings, through Zoom meetings. Um, and through that, we give drivers the opportunity to identify the common problems they face and strategize about how to solve them. And so that includes very practical things like how do you want the app to work, like design questions, to bigger things like what problems do you face as a worker? You know, one of them is that there's no public, there are very few public bathrooms in New York City. So a lot of drivers develop serious health problems because you are going through your work day and unable to stop and take a bathroom break. You do that for years and years, it has like serious health repercussions. So maybe something something we might, something we're talking about internally is do we join forces with other people who would like to see a public restroom infrastructure in New York City to demand that and to get the city government to create it? We might. We'll see. It depends on what our members want to do. Um, it is insane. This is a city of 8 million people with no public restrooms. Like what kind of like nutso biological experiment is that? I, I think everything that you mentioned about platform cooperatives is super interesting in terms of how they can transform society. To me, though, it feels like um, today platform cooperatives are still relatively a niche phenomenon where, you know, there's a handful of examples that people commonly cite and point to. But on the grand scale of things, if you survey users as to what products and services they're consuming, they're generally not those that are created by a cooperative. And I, I mean, I have some theories as to why I'd love to hear your thoughts, but one of the biggest blockers in my mind is their limited access to capital, which hinders them from scaling and growing. Like the amount of fuel that Uber was able to pour onto the fire and get global scale adoption from both sides of the marketplace was in the billions of dollars. Drivers Cooperative has raised something like, you know, a single digit million dollars from people who largely backed it out of altruism. Um, And altruism is great, but altruism doesn't scale in this world, in my view. Um, And it's not what people are uh, first and foremost motivated by. And so I think platform cooperatives need to overcome this issue of being disadvantaged in terms of the ability to um, accrue capital to themselves and to be able to invest in their growth in order to really become competitive with centralized businesses. And to me, that's why DAOs are really exciting because DAOs resemble cooperatives in terms of being owned by their members or workers and people who are contributing to the network, but they're also able to benefit from speculation on their native DAO token, which allows them to grow and amass a really large treasury that can be used to fund all sorts of different initiatives. So I'm curious what you think of that and um, like, did I diagnose the problems correctly with platform cooperatives? Do you think that the the biggest issue is access to capital? And what do you think about DAOs? I think I think that's definitely part of the answer. Um, access to capital is a huge challenge. I mean, I think I said before we had to like MacGyver this thing together with not enough capital, um, and we've been successful enough at this point that we're we've we've got enough for the next leg in our journey. I think that all that's really needed to change the equation is one big success story. And I think we can be that big success story. In fact, we're on the way to becoming it. Um, the other thing, the other factor, I think, if you if you look at like 
I don't know, there was this like classical economics debate about like the factors of production. And, you know, mm-hmm. most, most of them are things that money can buy. But another one is like people, right? The, and I forget, forget how they call this. Um, but do you have people who are, who are, who want to build this kind of company? So I think we actually have to look at what are the motivations of entrepreneurs. Um, I am not motivated by wanting to enrich myself. Um, I own literally 0% of this cooperative, which I've spent a significant amount of time in my life building. Um, Most of our core team, I would say, in fact, all of our team is not motivated um, solely by uh, wanting financial insurance. There's easier ways. There's easier, if you want to make money, there's easier ways to do that in the world. Um, People are motivated by desire to want to live in a better world, um, to want to do something interesting with their time, to want to feel some sort of be able to feel pride in, in what they're putting into the world. Um, those are things, if you look at kind of the latest sort of management, you know, theory, like Google tells people everybody should be managers of volunteer because ultimately we all are, right? We have cho- people do have choices about where they labor, um, more choices depending on where in the labor market you, you are exactly. Um, but I would say, Part of the problem here has been that people couldn't really imagine what a platform cooperative was and which limited uh, sort of the pool of people who would be crazy enough to try. Um, I think I'd like to think that something we've done in the drivers cooperatives, we've made, made this imaginable for more people. And I think we're going to see more people who have more skills who are going to be launching companies like this. Um, it's going to become kind of commonplace. Um, that, that doesn't solve that. That doesn't necessarily solve the second problem, which is access to capital. But I think as soon as these businesses begin to become successful, it's only going to get easier. By the way, Eric, I think you're an aberration in terms of how you described yourself of of um, owning zero percent of this business that you are committing most of your waking hours to and being okay with it. I think um, like that's that's really amazing and admirable. And I think the entire team at the Drivers Co-op is pretty special. But I think it's really rare. And I think um, world scale change can only come when the most profitable thing to do is also the most worker friendly thing to do. To me, like that is what needs to happen versus relying on people who are operating out of the goodness of their heart and are more selfless. Um, And this brings me back to Web3, which I think is a model for how... um, we can create incentives for founders who are both mercenary and care about making money and doing things that financially make sense for themselves, but in doing so also create structures that benefit all of their participants. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's sort of a question of like, you know, we, we have a staff obviously and we have, we have profit sharing for drivers and for everybody who does the work around here. Um, so it's not like there's no incentive, right? It's but it's a different scale. Um, it's not the sort of outsized incentive for somebody like like me, right? Who you know I put in some work, but you know what? A lot of people put in work around here, so I'm going to get some kind of reward, not as much as a conventional founder would, but so will everybody else. I mean, I think people who are not okay with that, like okay, bye, like go start some other stupid venture back startup that's going to make some crap product that nobody really likes or wants. Like you might be rich, but no one's going to like you. Um, the, I think that what's eventually, we're, we're going to compete with those people in the marketplace. Like we actually already are. So really this question is not going to be settled by people like me or like anybody on this call. Well, okay. Maybe it'll be settled a little bit by us. It's going to be settled by people in the marketplace making choices. 
It'll be settled by drivers decided, deciding which platform they want to drive for. It's also going to be settled by consumers deciding where they want to put their dollars. Do you want to use some slimy Silicon Valley venture-backed app, which is going to make some founder rich? Or do you want to spend your 20 bucks on a ride, which is going to go mostly to your driver so they can have a better life while they strategize about how to make this industry you know, not toxic? Um, I'm confident that there's enough people out there that a company like ours can succeed um, and eventually, frankly, dominate, and maybe not dominate, but uh, succeed and uh, compete effectively in the marketplace. Um, yeah. You know, but the heaviest, there's a heavy lift to get this thing started. Um, the lift will get totally. lighter the more people are out there who are putting this kind of thing into the world. But we want to talk about DAOs. Sorry. Yeah. I definitely agree. I want to, before we jump into the DAO discussion, I'm really curious. Like, I definitely agree. I think, like, all else equal. Like, if I basically believe I will get there in roughly the same amount of time at roughly the same level of, like, you know, comfort and safety or whatever, and for roughly the same cost, I'm willing to pay even a little premium, right? For, like, the better one. But, like, there's a certain point at which, oh, if I'll get there in, like, 20 minutes versus an hour, or I'll get there for $20 versus, like, $50, like, the kind of marginal, patients kind of like where's thin basically for being able to choose the sort of like better alternative um, for, for the, for the workers. And I'm curious, like the way to get there seems like you need a lot of capital because in order to get the ride time short and in order to get the cost low, you have to have a really dense network of drivers that someone happens to be positioned really close to me, ready to drive. And that just requires, I think, a lot of scale. And I'm curious, like, are there things you're doing to mitigate that where you focus, like, on particular routes where you're, like, positioned around, hey, we're just going to focus on the airport. We'll get liquid with, like, airport to, you know, Brooklyn and Manhattan. And then, like, beyond that, like, whatever, don't, we'll, we'll once we get to a toehold there, we'll, like, focus on other markets or, like, how do you, how do you mitigate that kind of, because um, I agree with you that it's sort of like within a certain range, people are willing to pay a little premium, but like there is a point where it, it stretches it too far, probably. Yeah. And I think, I mean, our pricing right now, just to be clear, is our standard is drivers make 30% above Uber and Lyft. And on most trips, not all, because they use their, their pricing as a constant auction. On most trips, we're actually below Uber and Lyft in terms mm. of what riders pay. So we're not asking people to pay more for a more responsible service. We're telling people you can pay less. Sure, um, yeah. It's a better it's deal. Great. But in terms of you, 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 I mean, you hit the nail on the head. These are the, some of those challenges that we face. We all, what I'll say is this. I'm not going to tell all of our competitor, all of our friends and enemies uh, who are out there listening in, in cyberspace world exactly what our business strategies are. But mm-hmm. we've got some things planned for 2022. There are many different ways. Money is not the only way to solve problems. Relationships are um, a powerful force as well. Um, sure. So we, we've got some, yeah, we've got some plans. Um, so I think it'll be 2022 is going to be a good year for the Drivers Cooperative. And I'm sorry, I'm being kind of a jerk about my fellow capitalist-minded entrepreneurs. No, um, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I would actually like to probe into that a little bit more. You you clearly have very strong (laughs) feelings about capitalists and Silicon Valley, um, both of which are places that I've occupied. Yeah, as some have pointed out, Lee's job title includes the word capitalist. Lee is the nicest capitalist I've ever met. (laughs) Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I, I think that needs to be in the description of... That's your new bio. That's going to supplant it, girl, of venture capital. Exactly. The nicest capitalist I've ever met. I love it. But yeah, Eric, I would just love for you to sort of paint a picture for us of this future world that 
you want us to move towards because I think it just differs so dramatically from the capitalist society that we're currently inhabiting that it's difficult for most people to even rationalize or think about what this might look like. Is it a world where everyone is a member owner of a cooperative and it's cooperatives all the way down buying and selling from each other? Um, Or yeah, just say more about what, you know, how do we fix the world? What does the world look like in the future? I wish I knew how to fix the world. Um, the I think that I think when I first became politically active, I was really interested in sort of comprehensive theories of everything and of you know an idea which is going to be a solution to any problem that came along the way. Um, I think where I'm at now is um, I'm much more interested. I think to understand the world, you have to be deeply embedded in context. Um, there are, I think you can identify social forces um, which act across space and time. Like capitalism is not something just in New York City. Um, it's something in London. It's something in Sao Paulo. It's something in Tucson, Arizona. Um, but the way it manifests is different in every industry, in every city, uh, in every single workplace. And you have to take time to really listen, learn, um, and embed yourself in, in a particular reality in order to understand the problems that are being created by the social forces at work there. Um, And then you have to build relationships and figure out collectively with other people, with people who are facing that situation directly. I mean, I'm, I do have a tax and commission license. I do drive for hire. I don't consider, I don't consider myself a driver. Um, You have to take your lead from the people who are most directly impacted by all of these oppressive systems. Um, There's a term that Stoughton Lind, who's a old, Quaker organizer use called accompaniment, which is where, you know, you get some skills and your skill could be finance or your skill could be law or your skill could be media or it could be software engineering or it could be management. You know, that's a absolutely a skill um, or it could be sales or it could be being an electrician um, and put that skill to work um, for a broader social movement um, based on a strategy that people who are directly affected by this issue want to pursue. Um, so yeah, that's, I think, I don't know. So there's no panacea. There's no panacea. I think there's no panacea, but that said, I mean, I'm, and then I think what will happen, the world I'd like to see is the world that emerges from people gaining the confidence to understand their reality and then act to change it. Um, that's, that's what I, the world I'd like to live in. I do think that, um, there is everywhere a deep desire um, for people to to own. Also, we don't have we can't just snap that we can't just snap our fingers and wake up in the world we want to live in. It takes strategy and struggle uh, to get there. So, yeah. the world I like to live in. Yes, I like to live in a world where fundamentally all people are equal, um, where all people have enough, um, where people cooperate, where we have democracy, um, where we're living in harmony with the earth. Uh, where there's not unnecessary suffering. This is just your typical communist utopia stuff right here. Um, but I think that to get to that world, what we need to get to, to that universal, we have to start with the very, very particular, um, which is starts with people talking to each other about the situations right. they face and how to change them. What do you think about universal basic income? Because it feels like a key theme is, uh, you know, 
individuals usually are a lot more fragmented as suppliers to a labor market than their buyers will be. And so just basic business competition theory is the more concentrated player will have more power. And so and the more fragmented player will usually have worse deal yeah. terms. And so uh, one way to sort of like increase things is just give the buyers a lot more power just by giving them a boost economically where their best alternative to negotiated agreement or whatever, <laughs> their BATNA for any specific job offer is like, uh, well, I don't have to have a job because I can pay my bills kind of regardless. And I'm using labor to further my goals and to have life satisfaction rather than, or to, you know, further some social goals or whatever else, right? Rather than using labor just to stay alive, basically. Um yeah, I'm curious what you think of it. I think it's a great idea. And I think what's so fascinating about the UBI idea is that it kind of comes off as a sort of like idealist idea, like goal of like, wouldn't it be nice if everybody had a paycheck? What interests me is that it's actually kind of emergent from the needs of our own reality. Um, the New Deal came from capital state managers realizing that, wait a minute, if every business owner is incentivized to drive wages down to the minimum, nobody has enough money to afford to buy the products they're producing. And so that's how we ended up with Keynesianism and Fordism as a mode of production. Um, We're sort of in the pandemic, I think we, (laughs) it was a very interesting moment. We sort of ran the experiment on why you need universal basic income it wasn't only because people were literally going to not be able to survive. They didn't get unemployment benefits. It was also because the U.S. economy was going to collapse if people didn't have purchasing power. Um, And so I think it's a provocative idea. I think the question will be, can we find a way to operationalize it? And can you create the political force that can make something like that a reality? There are critics who are worried that if people get a universal basic income, it's going to be used as a political pretense to take away other universal benefits, things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Um, I don't think that necessarily has to be the way things things would happen. Um, I think it could be additive and not, not substitutive. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I think what's fascinating about what's happening today in the labor market is that we're sort of witnessing like a slow motion strike of right. um, if people you know, the fast food industry is a great example where I used to work. It's like suddenly they're paying, we couldn't get, we couldn't imagine $10 an hour, then we went 15. Now restaurants on their own are volunteering 20 because the market has changed, right? Um, This is because we kind of sort of had something like UBI for a while. Um, And so you can see there's a great, people are into theory, Antonio Negri, who is a uh, Italian political theorist, had this whole idea of how, um, struggle for the it was it was class struggle that actually forces the uh development of capital to develop better technology because there's this like refusal the refusal of work is the motive force of history is is his idea Mm -hmm. um and so they had to replace workers with machines because people were refusing to work so they had to reduce their reliance on human labor you can never fully get away from human labor um but what this does is it massively increases the productivity of human labor uh, so then the question is, well, how do you distribute the surplus? And so universal basic income, ironically, is actually like an old Marxist Antonio Negri idea, um, which is now huh. being taken up by people who probably would never want to be seen in the same room with folks like that. Well, it has it has even longer roots than, than Marx. Um, I think Thomas Paine was like yeah. an advocate for universal basic income. Cool. Maybe we could do with Bitcoin. Maybe we could... Here's an idea. Why doesn't the city Uh of New York start its own first New York City bank of Bitcoin 
and just mint a bunch of Bitcoin and issue a universal basic so, income. So, I mean, this is already happening, not not okay. from any sort of government-related institution, obviously, but it's happening through all of these protocols and new Web3 products just airdropping tokens to their users. Hmm. It's like recently there was the example of ENS, where if you had an ENS domain registered, you could have claimed um, a token distribution a lot of people got $4,000 or $6,000 worth of tokens from that, which is definitely not negligible to the average American. And it's like it's like UBI, but uh, you just have to use these products. Hmm. Um, so I think this is already happening on different corners of the internet. It's just not universally distributed right now. Um, and what really excites me about it is it's not just income. It's, it's capital. You're getting distributed an asset that can appreciate in value. And if you hold on to it, it can become a long-term investment. And so people can actually build wealth versus just spending this sum of money on you know, their daily necessities, or they could choose to sell and pay for those expenses. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm really in favor of new experiments in UBC, Universal Basic Capital. Um, another topic that I wanted to touch on with you is, I think, the difficulty of labor organization in the modern day platform economy mm. in a world of fragmented workers who don't know each other's identities, don't convene in a common workplace, don't have the means to, to contact each other. It makes it much more challenging to organize and to band together. Um, and I, I liked your analogy of raising the ceiling um, versus uh, like raising the floor. And the more I thought about this issue, and I've spoken to creators who are protesting, you know, the existing platforms that they're doing work on, the more I've just come to terms with the fact that I feel like this is an intractable problem. And instead of trying to raise the floor via creators or gig workers unionizing, and going on strike, instead, we should just aim to raise the ceiling, create a better set of platforms that they can do work on, and enable that kind of free market competition for workers to have the same impact that historically labor organization would have. Absolutely. I think it's a brilliant idea. And I think that's the experiment we're running right now is what, yeah, totally. you know, on a fairly large scale is like, what happens within a marketplace, which is sort of controlled by two really a duopoly of two gigantic venture-backed incumbents suddenly has to contend with a worker-owned alternative. Can we change these market dynamics? I mean, victory for us is not only succeeding as a company. If we can force our competition to respond by competing for workers, that also is a success for our members. Um, Some indications that that may already have happened in some ways, Um, but the experiment is still ongoing. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, uh, you know, challenges that I pointed to earlier of essentially overcoming a network effect from an incumbent are the same, Lee, with what you just outlined. You can imagine, you know, if some better kind of like more worker friendly uh, version of a social media platform, it's like, well, what's the main thing that the creators want is access to an audience. So it's the same thing that drivers want, which is access to writers. And it's mm-hmm. like, you want the the, the deal, once you find a writer, obviously it's better for it to be better for you. But if you can't find the writer because they're not on the network, then, you know, you have to just go where the writers are. Basically, if, if your strategy is to be a driver or a creator, um, you have to be where the audience is. So um, 
it's interesting because it does kind of make me think that um, the whether it's through a crypto version of crowdfunding or it's like you know 100% liquid from day one DAO kind of a situation or like just regal, regular old equity, you know, crowdfund. It seems like the meme of we want to make this work and people are going to bet on it, you know, partially for altruistic reasons, but partially because they think it'll succeed. Um, like is probably the greatest strength of these types of platforms where it's the idea that this could succeed and it should succeed and, and people will put their money where their mouth is to try and help make it happen. Um, probably building a war chest that way to help overcome the network effect is, um, and then there's other things like you can use the resources more or less effectively depending on the strategy of how it gets deployed, but amassing the resources competing against the sort of traditional VC backed uh, entities is, 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 yeah, that's a hard part. I, I think Lee, you're right to focus on that. Maybe just to throw in like a interesting case study here of how these things can come together. Uh, back in 2007, 2007, 2008, there was a writer strike of most of the writers who write the shows that people love. So the writers went on strike and this was like still in like the early days of YouTube. So I think it was an idea that was like maybe a little tragically ahead of its time, but they went on strike from their jobs writing these shows. So all of a sudden, like, the shows just weren't happening. But instead, they began putting their own material, I think, on YouTube. That, in effect, is the same thing as a TV show, right? They never monetized it. It was always for free. But that in embryonic form, like, I think that shows you the power of the creator economy. It's getting the leverage to strike a new deal with the people who mm-hmm. own the platforms, Totally. And that can come through unionizing the platform. It can also come from the threat of starting your own. That's an animal that's been here since there has been labor. Like yeah. the, the first general strike in, well, one of the first general strikes in history is called the Secessio Plebis in ancient Rome. And the story is that the plebs literally just got up, left Rome, and started their own city, like on <laughs> another hill. What city was it? As Detroit. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, the, um, I'm not sure. But uh, I might have butchered the history there a little bit, but that's the legend. That's a, the legend, at least. I want to visit that city. I've been to Rome. I, I need to go to this other place. <laughs> it's probably Bologna, frankly, knowing Bologna. Yeah. But, you know, this idea of the, this threat of the exodus, you know, getting biblical, yeah. that's what strikes are. And in it, it can happen quickly where people go on strike for a day or it can be kind of, if you look at things at kind of a meta level of like what's happening here is labor is, you know, acting out its own subjectivity. People are making their own choices about how to get more leverage, how to get a better life. That can happen through like the standard format of like a union organizing campaign. It can also happen through people getting up and starting their own companies. It can also happen from people withdrawing from the labor force, um, which drives wages up. Uh, I think we have to think very like when you look at class struggle at like this level of abstraction, you can identify the same underlying trends and then you can get creative about other ways of allowing them to manifest or helping them manifest to shape reality. Uh, so I think that there's a huge amount of promise in the experimentation that's happening and a lot of creative things that can be done in the crypto space or with DAOs. I don't fully understand these worlds. I was like a communist by choice and like a technologist, technology entrepreneur by necessity uh, mm-hmm. because tech entrepreneurs disrupted like the traditional labor markets that I was organizing in. Um, and so I don't know as much about technology as I, as I should, but it's great to be able to come to a place like this to, to learn. Um, and great that smart people like you guys are, are creating these, um, opportunities for reflection. 
Thank you. I think that's an excellent note to end on. Essentially, there's lots of different ways to affect change. It's not just about um, struggling against the status quo, but instead possibly building a new version um, that is more worker and participant friendly. Um, in any case, th this was super fascinating. Thank you so much, Eric, for being here today and sharing all of your really provocative thinking with us. Uh, we'll need to continue the theme and find someone else from Drivers Co-op to come and chat with us next, um, but really appreciate your making the time. Thank you both so much.